we have the opportunity to, what we've just done in, uh, in singing and in being called to worship this morning is more and more trying to reorient our wayward hearts. Like we're coming in here hot in all kinds of ways. Many, and many of us are not even in this room because of all the things we've had going on this week. So if you're listening on the recording later, or if you're here present right now, uh, we're coming in hot in life uh, from all kinds of things. And we can both now, we've been telling of the gospel that is true and that we live in, now we're going to get to show it. Because the, the beauty of God knows our limits and he knows our frailty. And there are two ways specifically uh, that are called sacraments in scripture that uniquely communicate the grace of Jesus to us. And those two things are Lord's Supper that we do every first Sunday and baptism. Particularly, this one uh, images the uniqueness of how helpless we are to save ourselves. If you remember all the way back in Acts 2, this is way long time ago, um, at the beginning, I guess in September when we started this Acts series. In Acts 2, verse 39, after uh, just preaching kind of his first sermon, uh, right after Pentecost, Peter is, you know, just gets done, he drops the mic, and all the people say, what shall we do? Like, we've now heard the gospel, what do we do with that? And he says two things. He says, repent and be baptized. And he says, all of you, because this promise is both for you and it's for your kids. All the way, pulling back this promise out of all the way in the days of Abraham into this new era of Jesus right now. And so that's what we're going to do. Uh, we're going to repent and believe Jesus together that his grace flows downhill to needy sinners like us. So with that, Hunter, Erica, Asher, Everett, fam, friends, elders, anybody who would like to come and stand with them uh, in this moment, come on up. What's up, dudes? Oh, man, I wish I had gotten the memo. I would have worn my overalls. <laughs> Man, too bad. How you guys doing? Yeah? You doing good? You look like you're doing good. <laughs> He's like, don't look at me. Um, so baptism in a, in a really unique way images the grace of Jesus for this reason. What, what we see all the way back in Acts 2 is the Holy Spirit falls down. What we're doing as this water is about to hit these kids' heads and fall down their faces, depending on how much water I put, I won't do much, is, is imaging that reality. There is no way in and of ourselves that we can save ourselves. It is only by the grace of Jesus falling into our hearts through the power of the Holy Spirit that that's possible. And so, Erica, you're a therapist. How difficult would you say it is to change the human heart? <laughs> Perfect answer. We didn't even rehearse that. She said, I can't do it. That's the reality of what's happening here. We cannot change our own hearts. These children, nor any other children in this room, nor any other adults in this room can change their own hearts. It's only by the Holy Spirit working in the power of Jesus that that's possible. And so what we're about to do is both sign, this is a sign and this is a seal. And that means two things. One, it's a sign because it's real. That's real water. See that in there? Real water. You don't have to do anything. You can just hang out there. Um, but it's also a seal in that saying this. 
as true as the grace of Jesus for needy sinners is real for me, is real for Hunter and Erica, it is that real for you two boys too. And the same grace that saves us is the same grace that can save you. So with that said, uh, we've got a couple of vows. Three are going to go to you guys. You can respond by saying yes. The last one is going to go to this crew right here. Uh, Because we collectively, as a church family, are coming around and saying, this is not a solo effort, but you raising your kids in the fear and the love of the Lord is something that we want to help you do. So here are those vows now. One, do you acknowledge your child's need of the cleansing blood of Jesus Christ and the renewing grace of the Holy Spirit? Two, do you claim God's covenant promises in their behalf? And do you look in faith to the Lord Jesus for their salvation as you do your own? Three, do you now unreservedly dedicate your child to God and promise in humble reliance upon divine grace that you will endeavor to set before them a godly example? You will pray with and for them. You will teach them the doctrines of our holy religion and that you will strive by all the means of God's appointment to bring them up in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. All right, peoples, this one's to you. Do you, as a congregation church family, undertake the responsibility of assisting the parents in the Christian nurture of this child. Wonderful. Okay, we're going to do this. Who wants to go first? My man. All right. So, uh, Hunter is the covenant head of your household. What's the name of your boy here? Asher. Mill name? Ingram Dale. Asher Ingram Dale. Asher Ingram Ingram Dale, child of the covenant. I baptize you in the name of the Father the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Lord, bless you and keep you. Lord, make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you and lift up his countenance to you and give you peace. Do you think you could hold my hand? Yes. Can I pray for you? Lord Jesus, we pray for this little boy. Uh, We pray that there would not be a day that he does not know you, that he would see mom and dad, uh, aunts, uncles, family, friends, and this church family, uh, and that that would call him to the beauty of the gospel that is true for him. Uh, And so would you seek and find him, and would he, in curiosity, look to you uh, always and forever? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Good work, dude. Okay, number two. Come on in here. All right, Hunter, how about this one? It's Everett Stegner-Dale. Everett Stegner-Dale, child of the covenant. I baptize you in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That was freaky, wasn't it? <laughs> All right, dude, can I pray for you? Uh, Lord Jesus, we pray in the very same way uh, for this little boy that there would not be a day that he doesn't know you. Uh, would you bless and keep him? Would your face shine upon him? And would you lift up your face to him and give him peace? We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Everybody, welcome Asher and Everett. I actually had to withhold some water. I got a little too much in my hands. That was, you're welcome, Everett. All right. Hey, kiddos, now is your time to shine. Head on back. Have some fun. K through five, you're dismissed. Okay, as the kiddos dismiss, here's a question 
for you to ponder. Think about yourself in 2017. Back in the good old days of 2017. Five years ago, where were you? What were you doing? What was your life like? Where were you at in your own heart and in your own self? Where were you with the Lord? What was life like for you then? Question two. Are you today where you thought you would be five years ago? Me neither. Five years ago, I was a couple years out of seminary, seminary gearing up to plant a church in Central Florida. And here we are. <laughs> Wacky. But isn't that, isn't that the reality of our plans and the Lord's plans and how those things, <laughs> more often than not, tend to be divergent? Um, it may have felt like five years that we've been in the book of Acts. We are now about to finish. This is Acts 28, the very last sermon in this book. It's also been five years since we last met Paul. If you can believe it, between Acts 19, when Paul's in Ephesus, and now there's a five-year span that takes place in there. So let me catch you up a little bit because that's a lot to happen in anybody's life. So we're in Acts 19. Paul is in Ephesus. He's preaching. He's been there for three years. And then right at the end of that time, he says, all right, it's time. I'm heading to Rome. <laughs> Little did he know just how difficult that statement would be. Um, he goes back to Jerusalem after finishing this kind of third of three missionary journeys. He's been arrested by the Jews. He's tried before the Jewish council, uh, and he preaches the gospel to them, takes the opportunity. They're about to kill him. So then he's like, whoa, 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 wait. Like as they've got him strung up, about to whip him, he's like, wait. And then he appeals and he, he says, hey, you guys actually can't touch me because I'm a Roman citizen. So if you want to deal with me, you got to deal with me through them, through Rome. And they, you know, begrudgingly accept. They send him off to the governor Felix, the governor of that area. He spends two years in jail, sort of like in the middle of trials and talking to various people in the midst of that. Uh, he preaches the gospel when he has the opportunity in front of the governor uh, of that area. Um, right after that, he gets an audience before King Agrippa. King Agrippa comes to town. He's the king of that area, does the same thing, preaches the gospel to that guy. Um, <clears throat> after all of that, kind of he's going up the chain of command. They're like, okay, well, you said you wanted to go talk to Caesar, so I guess we're going to go talk to Caesar. They put him on a boat. That boat uh, it wrecks in the middle of the ocean. It hits a nor'easter, I'm not sure exactly what that is, but it sounds bad. Uh, it, they have to, their ship runs aground on this little island in the Mediterranean called Malta. They get off. He's bitten by a deadly snake. He doesn't die. Uh, he heals the chief and a number of other uh, people in Malta, in that tribe that lived there at that time. They find another boat three months later, get on that boat. That finally brings them to Rome and five years have surpassed. What we're about to do now is pick up with all of that and talk about what does it look like after all of that craziness for him to show up, what does he do? So I want you to notice, what does he do? How long does it take him to do it? And with what kind of intentionality does he do it? So this is Acts 28, 17 through 31. I believe Cat, somewhere or another, 
is going to come and read. Yep. Catch, Ivy. Right there to the end. Okay, this is Acts 28, 17 through 31. After three days, he called together the local leaders of the Jews, and when they had gathered, he said to them, Brothers, though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. When they had examined me, they wished to set me at liberty, because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case. But because the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, though I had no charge to bring against my, na my nation. For this reason, therefore, I have asked to see you and speak with you, since it is because of the hope of Israel that I am wearing this chain. And they said to him, We have received no letters from Judea about you, and none of the brothers coming here has reported or spoken any evil about you. But we desire to hear from you what your views are. For with regard to this sect, we know that everywhere it is spoken against. When they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in great numbers. From morning till evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. And some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. And disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, Go to this people and say, You will indeed hear, but never understand. And you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their eyes they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed. Lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, God. So, if you're not where you thought you would be, five years ago to now. Paul's not where he thought he would be either. He knew he had intention to go to Rome. He did not exactly know that he would be going to Rome in that kind of a way and in chains. And yet the Lord is faithful with using him as he's intentional about how he's being used in that process. As we close up this book of Acts, I think this begs a question to each of us today. Whose life is mine. Is my life my own? Or is my life, does my life belong to another? Because if my life is my own, then when my life doesn't go the direction that I want it to, then I'm going to kick and I'm going to scream and I'm going to cuss and I'm going to be mad and I'm going to be cynical and I'm going to push and push and fight and fight and will myself into whatever that direction was that I wanted my life to go in and be real miserable along the way. But there is an open-handed compliance that Paul follows the Spirit here with. There's, a, you know, and following the Spirit can be a very mystical thing, but it's very, it's not very abstract. It's very practical in this sense because God has put some things in his life, put some sufferings in his way, and his response to those things is this open-handedness but also this intentionality with how he lives 
in that way. Paul has already answered this question of whose life is mine. He said all the way back in Acts 20, as he's talking to the Ephesian elders about to leave, he goes, but I don't account my life as any value, nor as precious to myself, if I can only finish the course of ministry I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. My life is not my own, Paul says. It belongs to Jesus. And because my life belongs to Jesus, my days belong to Jesus. And I can then leverage that reality with the intentionality of how I live every day. And that's not just the thesis of Acts 28. That's the thesis all the way through. Jesus has invaded our world and has invaded individuals' lives through Pentecost, through the coming of the Holy Spirit, and then sent those people as missionaries all over the world. And that same work still goes on today. And as sovereign as he was with Paul, so sovereign is he over each one of our lives. So we're going to try to answer two questions today. One, whose life is this? Two, what do I do with it? So first, whose life is this? All right, look back at verse 17. Somebody yell out, how long did it take for Paul to get going in ministry once he lands in Rome? Wrong answer. How long, anybody? Three days. It took my man three days to get going. Like, think about everything, shipwreck, snake wound, years and years of trial and trouble, and then he lands, and immediately he's able to switch it on and be like, well, okay, I'm, <coughs> I'm under house arrest. Normally, I go to the synagogue whenever I show up someplace, but I can't, so how about I'll have the synagogue come to me? And he calls the Jews, and they willingly go and talk to this guy because they're like, I'm curious. I haven't heard about you, but I'm curious about what this thing is that you're talking about. And he goes on to say in verse 20, there's a reason why I'm doing this. There's a reason behind my intentionality with doing this. It is because of the hope of Israel that I'm wearing this chain. As we see Paul, if you were to read from Acts 19 to Acts 28, there's a theme that happens. Every time he comes upon an opportunity, he shares the gospel, but he does so in a particular way. He, he does so by just telling his own story. And as he tells his own story, he kind of will add details. And one of the details he adds is, he's like, listen, we were walking down this road. All of a sudden, there's this giant bright light, knocks me and all my friends over on the ground. And then everybody else hears nothing but just sees a bright light. I hear something crazy. Jesus says, I am Jesus, who you are persecuting. Paul says, who are you, Lord? He says, I am Jesus. And all of a sudden, three things become very clear to him. One, Jesus is alive. Like, he thought, he thought Jesus was dead. He thought that whole thing was a bygone era. And now this thing, this myth about Jesus coming back from the dead and these followers of his, he had to squelch that. And all of a sudden, this guy was standing right in front of him. Jesus was real. Uh, it was I had the hardest time thinking of a movie reference this week for this, so maybe you can help. What is a time in a movie where the bad guys think the good guy is dead, but he's actually not, and then he comes back and stands in front of him? Good call. Good call. There is kind of that redemptive storyline across a lot of narrative in there. Any? Gandalf coming on the wings. Yeah, good. I heard Harry Potter. That was in uh, somebody, Granny White said Harry Potter. Good. So there, there are all of these storylines that are familiar to us, but that's what's happening in his real life. I thought you were dead. And then 
normally the bad guys in that sort of scenario begin shaking in their boots because what's the good guy going to do to them? Not only did they know that he was now alive, he says, who are you, Lord? He, he can feel the power coming off of the Lord Jesus here in both the bright light and the presence of his, his glorified body. And finally, he's powerful, he's real, and then he says, whom you are persecuting. So he's powerful, he's real, and he's authoritative. Whom you are persecuting, he's accountable to this Jesus. And, you know, any time that something like that happens to us, Jesus could have killed him on the spot. And yet Jesus enters into his world, intersects his reality, and says, I've appeared to you for this purpose and this purpose alone, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things that you have seen me to do. Two words, servant, witness. So broad scale, this is something that he begins to adopt. Paul begins to adopt sort of as a moniker for himself. In the beginning of Romans, Paul, a slave of Christ, is how he describes himself. A doulos, like an actual servant of, slave of. I am under the authority of someone else, and he tells me what to do. I do not run my own life. And what particularly does he tell Paul to do? And by way of Paul, the rest of us, to witness, to say what you've seen. And like Paul does this, often with his own story. A little sidebar here, if, if sharing the gospel, if sharing you know, the, your faith feels like this scary thing, a way to kind of take the scare tactics down a couple of notches is just think of it in terms of sharing your story. Like instead of having to reframe that in some sort of thing you got to rehearse and you got to think or whatever, those things can be helpful too. But the reality of one human sitting across from another just sharing, this is my experience and how Jesus is the hero of my story. Maybe he could be yours too. And that's what Paul does time after time after time. Paul knew whose his life was. Do we know the same thing? Maybe we may know, do we know? Do we live as if my life belongs to Jesus? Or maybe the question to you is, do you know even this morning, does my life belong to Jesus? Because my life as my own works really well when things are going well. My life is my own when I'm killing it, when there's money in the bank, when everything is going exactly like I want it to go. When I feel good about myself and I can pat myself on the back, heck yeah, I did this. I am the king of my own castle. This is my life. I do run this. Until something crosses your path that you weren't expecting. Until suffering comes. Until illness comes. Until job loss comes. Until difficulty with a child or a parent or a sibling or a friend comes. And when those things cross our paths, all of a sudden, if you believe that your life is your own, then the only reason why you are where you are is up to you. Which feels really good when you're killing it, and it feels real bad if your life is falling apart. If all of that is on your shoulders to handle, that is a heavy burden to bear. Whose is your life? Who cares for you? Who shoulders those burdens for you? Is that only on your shoulders? Or do you have a stronger shoulder to carry those? Maybe your life isn't where you thought it would be five years ago. Maybe your life isn't where you thought it would be five days ago. 
This doesn't have to be big, gigantic, blow-up kind of things, but how, how have you seen your heart respond this week, even, to those things that you didn't see coming, to those things that got in your way, to those things that messed up your plans, to that illness you didn't see coming, to that dinner you burned, to that car trouble you had, to the sick child you had to take care of? And how did your heart respond to those things? Because we, we naturally are constantly trying to take our life into our own hands, wrestle it away from God and say, no, 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 I know how to run this life. I know how to do this better than you. But what if this isn't reality? What if the way we normally live and the blinders that we normally live with is not all that there is? Look at verses 26 and 27. Paul copy and pastes right out of the book of Isaiah. This is in Isaiah 6. And a very similar pathway that Paul took, that same pathway Isaiah took. Because Isaiah, in a very similar way, is one who has come up uh, against some difficulty. The Lord has called him to do something. And he's like, who am I? I don't know. I don't know what I'm going to do. I don't know how I'm going to do it. And then the Lord takes reality and opens it up to him. And it says this in Isaiah 6. On the year, in the year that King Isaiah died, I saw the Lord sitting on his throne. And the train of his robe filled the temple. And him, above him stood the seraphim. And holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, they cried. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. The Lord opened up a heavenly reality to Isaiah that emboldened him and also shook him to his core. Because most of us, look at, look at verse 27. Our hearts grow dull, our ears can't hear, our eyes stay closed. This is a description of how we live our normal everyday life. Like every morning we wake up and we're tuned out again to the reality of the Lord. Or maybe you're still not exactly sure what is reality. Is there a Jesus? What did he do for me? Wherever you are in that. Every morning we continue to wake up and the default position of our heart is, my life is mine. What Isaiah is saying, what Paul is saying, what Jesus is saying is, maybe that's not all there is. And he peels back the curtain for us today to say, look at the Lord Look at the glorious reality that is behind all realities. And it causes him to shake. And he goes on to say, woe is me. I'm lost. I'm a man of unclean lips. I'm among a people of unclean lips. Oh, when I think about and see the glory of the Lord and then reflect on myself, I, oh, I just see how far I fall short, Isaiah says. And the same reality is true of us. Because if that's who the Lord really is, and I reflect on my life and go, yep, I can see a, you know, 15 times last week where I'm wrestling my life out of those glorious hands and saying, no, these hands are the more glorious ones. These hands will be the ones that will make my life right. Yes. We begin to see how foolish that is. Like if that's the God who is, then what are these? Who am I if that's the reality? Woe is me. Woe are we. 
But it doesn't end there. It doesn't end there for Isaiah. It doesn't end there for Paul. It doesn't end there for us. Because then an angel flies to him. And he takes a coal from a, a burning coal from an altar. And he takes that coal and he puts it on Isaiah's lips. He says this. Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin is atoned for. The reality that, the, that Paul was living in is that reality that he was atoned for. He was going in this direction, and the Lord completely changed his tune. Why? Because he came to him with two truths. One, Jesus tells him, you're getting it all wrong. And he comes to us and says, you're getting it all wrong. You're living and spinning and worrying and feeling so much of this life on your shoulders, but see the greater reality. You're getting it all wrong, but I want to make it right. I'm not going to show you all your issues and then leave you to figure it out. I'm going to show you all your issues and then come to you. Come directly to you, to that place where you feel the most sensitive, the most insecure, the most needy. He says, I'm a man of unclean lips, and he goes right to his lips. Where do you feel most needy right now? That's where Jesus wants to go and say, I'm going to take care of that needy, broken, sinful, hurting spot in you. And he says two things. He says, your sin is atoned for. That means for every time we've tried to wrestle our lives away from the Lord, Jesus consistently over his 33 years of his life lives totally open-handed. Whatever my father asked me to do, that's what I'm going to do. And he takes that perfect record and he puts that on our shoulders. And then it says, your guilt is taken care of. And then he takes our guilt on his shoulders instead and dies for it. That's the kind of freedom that we can begin to live under. He says, I, I do nothing except testify to the grace of Jesus. The grace of Jesus is the only thing that empowers us to live open-handed and to live with intentionality. So if that's whose my life is, then what do I do with it? Heidelberg Catechism, question one. This is a, an old document that essentially is just a summary of the Christian faith. And here's where it starts. This is what kicks off the whole thing. Question, what is your only comfort in life and death? Answer, I'm not my own, but belong with body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from all the power of the devil. He also preserves me in such a way, listen, that not a hair can fall from my head. Every bit of your life, the good and the bad, the sinful and the beautiful, the stuff you saw coming and the stuff you couldn't see coming. He says, I got every bit of that, even down to the number of hairs on your head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. Therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he assures me of eternal life and makes me willing and ready from now on to live for him. That's what grace looks like when it comes and rests on a human heart. It's kind of like... Uh, if I'm a child of the 90s, so, you know, when you're playing Super Mario Brothers and it's like the 2D, you know, strafing Mario and he jumps like this and then that little star comes down from the clouds and it falls on Mario's head and then he like starts blinking yellow and it's like, ba 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 da and then he like goes faster and then all the Goombas start like flying all over the place. 
Come on, you know what I'm talking about. Thank you. Okay. Uh, there, there is a real sense. That's a really stupid illustration for a really not stupid reality. There, the, what Heidelberg question one just said is that you are invincible. Those of you in Christ are invincible. Why? Because even the worst thing that could happen to you, your death, even that worst thing only brings you even closer to Jesus. And so everything compared to that, only if that will bring you to Jesus, then everything else, suffering, death, issues, things inside, things outside, whatever those are, every one of those can fly you back to him. That's the reality that we live in. That's the peeled back reality that more and more we're asking the Holy Spirit, even for showing up this morning. We're asking the Holy Spirit would change us more and more to believe that. So, um, there is something else I want to say, but I don't know if I have time to say it. I'm going to go for it. Okay. Uh, so there's an old Saturday Night Live episode. This is really important, I promise. Uh, and Will Ferrell is uh, impersonating George W. Bush. And he coins a word that has lived on in infamy since that time. Uh, it's the, a spoof on a presidential debate, and the, the presenter says, uh, President Bush, or you know, future President Bush, would you give one word to sum up your presidential candidacy? And he looks into the camera, and Will Ferrell says, strategery. <laughs> there, there is a compliant strategery that Paul lives with here. Uh, there is a, there's a strategy that he is constantly thinking, if my life is not my own, if I've been bought with a price, if my days are not my own, but are sovereignly, I've been put wherever I am for a particular reason, for that particular people to know more about Jesus as I show and tell about him. I see at least four ways that he does that, and then we'll close. One, Paul's consistently living on mission in that being a servant and being a witness, shown you know, for one, by how quickly he jumps on the ground three days in and he knows exactly what he's doing. Our lives are the same. We have been sent on a mission to show and tell of the grace of Jesus wherever you are. When life's going great, when life's not going great. When you're laid up in your bed with an injury or whether you are killing it in the workplace, wherever you are, he has put you there for that reason. Second, He's self-preserving, which seems kind of counterintuitive. Wait, he's trusting the Holy Spirit, but he also preserves himself? I thought you're supposed to just like let go and let God. And, you know, he just kind of takes you wherever he wants you. Well, is that true? Is that the reality that we see him living in here? Why is he in Rome at all? Paul's in Rome because he's thinking about, okay, the Jews want to kill me. I don't really want to die. I think I probably have some stuff still to tell people. I'd really like to get to Rome. How do I do that? I'll appeal to Caesar so they take me there. So he does not just sort of lay down and let life bowl him over. But there is an agency that he seizes his life with. And in the same way, we have agency about what we do with our everydays. And to seize that does not necessarily mean that we're living counter to what the Lord wants to do. Third, He's confrontive. It says he's a witness, and a witness sitting on a stand when asked to testify about what they've seen, if they clam up and say nothing, is that a helpful witness? Not helpful. 
So there is something to the reality that we, yes, we show the gospel in the love that we show each other. We also, at times, when the Lord puts us in those spots, can tell. And if you're, again, if that's a scary thought, think about what has the Lord done for you. Put that into a story and make that something that you could share in a very natural way to whoever you might come across. And fourth, he's hospitable. That's where the story ends. It ends with ordinary hospitality. It starts with this giant bang, and it ends with a meal. I think that's intentional, because we don't live with many giant bangs in our life. Much of our life is very ordinary. But how do we live those ordinary ways with radical intentionality that we have been sent into that ordinariness with the grace of Jesus to show it and tell it? Okay, this reminds me a lot of Jonah, because the book of Jonah ends, he's this sort of, you know, this wayward prophet. He's, if, if God's sovereignty, you know, is anything, it is very real in the, the story of Jonah because he tries to do everything but do what God tells him to do. I resonate a lot more with Jonah than I do Paul. Anybody else? Right? So here's Jonah running all around. He, tries, he literally takes a ship in the complete opposite direction of where he's supposed to go. And what does God do? He eats him with a whale and brings him right back. And he's like, I can't do anything. So, okay, I'll do what you're telling me to do, God. Does it this sort of grumpy, begrudgingly way. He's like, okay, if, if nobody would repent, that would really make me happy. Everybody repents. And then he goes and like sits up on a hill in his little grumpy self and a plant grows up. And he's like, oh, thank you, God. Yes, you finally have favor over me. And then about the time that he puts some words to that, then the plant dies and he's like, ah, oh, why is nothing in my life the way that I want it to be? Just let me die. Just let me die. And this is, this is the question that the book of Jonah ends with. And I think in a very similar way with the abrupt ending of Acts 28, this could be the same question to us today. God says to Jonah, shouldn't I love this city? Like all this grace, all this intentionality, all of this rerouting in your life that I have done as you've tried to pull the reins out of my hands and I continue to gently pull you back. There's 120,000 people down there. Don't they deserve that same kind of grace? I think the question to us today, doesn't God love Creve Hall? Doesn't God love Nashville? Doesn't God love the people that live to your left and to your right? Doesn't God love your coworkers? Doesn't God love those you play pickleball with or whatever it is that you Nashville people do? In the same way that he has loved us. So Jesus, when he stands over Jerusalem and weeps and says, how I long to gather you. He says the same thing over Nashville. And the ones he's chosen to get about that work, these people. Would he use us with that kind of intentionality every morning, peeling back the reality of his glory and of our need and of our empowerment through Christ to be about this life that he's made for us? Okay, let's pray. So Father, this is too big of a task for us. Uh, who are we? Woe is us. We are a people of unclean lips and we continue to try to grab life away from you. I pray that you would give us rest. Give us the kind of rest that wherever we are today, 
that whatever is going on in life today, whether it's what, we're, what we would like to see happen or if it's the complete opposite, would you give us a, a vision of the reality of your grandeur, that you are doing all things. You are that powerful and that glorious. You own the hosts of the heavens. They do your bidding. You run this world and you've chosen to love us. Impact our hearts by that reality. So soften us, so open us up that we could live with an open-handed strategy and intentionality in every crack and crevice of our life where you might want to fill your grace in. Use us. The grief hall would look different. We pray in Christ. Amen.